Hello, and welcome to Time Well Spent, a place where the most brilliant minds in the world take on the toughest questions in science, politics, technology, and much more. My guest today is Robin Hansen, economist, futurist, and author of the influential blog, Overcoming Bias, which as of this week is available on Substack. Robin, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure we can make up to this most brilliant mind things, but uh, let's give it a try. Let's give it our best shot. Um, so let's talk about uh, the recent developments in AI. Um, at least in my experience, I see these sorts of things uh, emerging as sort of a trendy set of buzzwords that get used more and more in the last five to 10 years. And then it really only breaks through into the mainstream uh, kind of current thing level status in the last few months. Uh, but you have been researching and pondering these things much longer than than most people talking about AI now. What would you most like to change about the current AI conversation coming from that perspective? Well, um, historical perspective, I guess. So, uh, you know, we've seen similar bursts of interest and concern about AI going back a long way. So we're now, you know, maybe near the peak of the current burst, but we had another one in, say, the late 1980s, 1990s. Um, we had one in the 1960s, plausibly one in the 1930s, although they didn't call it AI, they call it automation, and even plausibly one in the 1820s with the rise of the Industrial Revolution and concern about automation there. Uh, and we've just consistently seen over this whole time, the scenario is that some new demo and technology appears and it starts to have impact and then people are immediately trying to envision how far this will go how fast and they're saying gee this looks unprecedented this could go there right this could just soon take over all the jobs and replace humans in all the jobs and that's what people have said every time <laughs> Over this long period and previous things, we've had presidential commissions and big news coverage, media coverage about the unprecedented new abilities that had just appeared. And that's what we have again. So, um, you know, I'd like people to know about how that's played out each time, typically. I mean, there is usually some concrete developments and some actual useful applications. And then there's a, more investment in terms of new firms and existing firms making new projects and then like students going into, into related fields. And of course, usually the fears are overblown or the expectations are too high. And what you have is, you know, a new set of technologies that diffuses out into practice, but not a revolution. And that should be placed in the context of just say the last 70 years of computer science and computer applications where we've had relatively steady progress but every once in a while we have you know a local breakthrough and that gets attention but um you know the distribution of innovation in terms of their size is almost all innovations in small things relatively few in medium-sized things relatively little in uh big things and that's just the distribution of innovation in general and that seems to apply to most fields, but AI has this unusual potential to help people envision a much bigger impact of the thing they see in front of them. Because they everybody's saying someday there's going to be machines that do everything. 
could this thing I see right in front of me be the breakthrough that leads to that thing that I hope for or fear? And that's what's different about AI is people project these huge potential advances on the, the thing they see in front of them. Makes sense. Um, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of what you're saying, I think, applies really to any sort of technological fad or any... Well, um, if, it, if it inspired such big visions, right? <laughs> so, so most technological innovations don't make people think of rampaging robots. Uh, whereas AI does. And so that's the difference here. I mean, in just in terms of actuality, most innovation is lots of small things and every once in a while it's a big thing. And, but different kinds of innovations just project different images people have about what could happen. So the next big breakthrough in the mousetrap, uh, building the better mousetrap is not going to inspire the same vision because like, sure, it could revolutionize and destroy all mice problems completely, but it's it's not going <laughs> to threaten anybody's sense of the world being run by robots instead of humans. Um, and so, so the interest is especially susceptible there. Um, part, of, part of the motivation for um, asking this question was a post you wrote a few years back about how telecommuting was a really neglected trend. Yes, and I, I, I think telecommuting, think so. I, I think that telecommuting is, um, it was kind of the last big, technology breakthrough that everyone got uh, really excited about. And now I wonder whether if we compare those two things side by side, uh, are we still sleeping on remote work to some extent? And how do you think these two technologies kind of... Certainly remote work has had a much bigger impact on society in the last 10 years than AI has. Um, You know, that's a hands down true. But I think still think we haven't realized most of the potential of remote work. Uh, it's still mostly there to be realized. So I think over the next 30 years, we will see it realized. But we just so far have just seen the simple thing of people, you know, working from home instead of the office without that much changing how things are done. It's going to We be- have a restructured institutions at right. a fundamental level. So, the, so there's, a, there's a famous, you know, st- story about electrification, which was that... Um, Originally, people had factories with non-electricity power, and then they had electricity, and then they basically plugged the electricity into the same sort of factories they had before. And that didn't give very large productivity boosts. But then it took 30 years for people to reorganize factories to take advantage of electricity. The main thing was you could have a lot smaller motors, many smaller motors instead of a few big motors, which you drove power around through some big bands. And then there was huge benefits from electricity once you reorganized factories to take advantage of it, but that was what was required. And so similarly, I would say for remote work, it'll be the reorganization of work around remote work that will make the big productivity gains. And what what do you see as kind of the time horizon for that? I, I know you mentioned um, that you wouldn't be surprised if 30 years from now, remote work were the most important trend that people weren't really keyed into fully. Um, do you do you think that's still true, even even with AI? If we get to thirty years from now um, and compare them side by side, will remote work have more impact than AI? Possibly, yeah. So, I mean, you have to envision what what I have in mind for remote work is. So, imagine. Today, a plumber comes to your office and they are a human who come with their bag of tools. 
in the future, a plumber might be an avatar that, I don't know, sits downstairs in an apartment complex that anybody could use whenever they need it. And it shows up and it has a standard set of tools. And then a plumber uses it from long distance. But then each little step of the plumbing job, a different person swaps into the avatar to do. So we we end up with as much specialization as you might have in, as an automobile automobile factory. And as you know, automobile factories are vastly more productive than a small team of four people putting together a car because of how much they can specialize in each particular task. And so, you know, if there's firms of a thousand plumber specialists, each of doing one little piece of a plumbing job, they can each swap in at their moment when the avatar needs to do that next thing. And they swap into the avatar and they have it do that task. And now you're getting sort of, you know, car factory levels of specialization in something that today is done by a generalist. That's the kind of productivity gains that I'm seeing as huge. Uh, it's the opportunity for specialization and, you know, basically city scale specialization, even in remote places. Gotcha. Uh, and so uh, specialization and trade is determined by the extent of the market. And if you have lots of people um, that are essentially within the same market, then you can have lots more specialization, lots more gains from trade. Right. Uh, I'm not sure I fully understand the plumber example, though, because that seems to me like something that, you know, is really, really restricted by physical sp- space. And what am well, I missing well, there? Once they have a good enough avatar, they can do it from elsewhere. Would they, the avatar have physical characteristics? I mean, the avatar like, would, I mean, it would be a physical robot, basically, with arms and, you know, actuators and claws. And, you know, if it's good enough for the person from long distance to control it with the video and audio, then they can swap in and just do the next step of the physical job that they're, that, that needs to be done. So, yeah, you would need a good enough haptics and inter, you know fast enough lag low enough lag internet so that you could just naturally directly control it but those so are coming is, how soon do you think that's coming this is remote work paired with a lot of hardware advancements as well right but if there's a large enough industry demand for it then i think there's this is well within the reach of current abilities it's just a matter of like doing it hmm. So the, the uh, AI is much harder job than you're talking here of, of sort of just physically good enough haptics. Hmm. Um, that's fascinating. I think, I mean, I, I guess, I guess if we think about it in terms of the advances in self-driving cars, for example, and it seems like they've come a really long way, but um, you know, if anything, some of the biggest obstacles remaining are more regulatory uh, than I, than anything else, um, pro- probably this is closer than I was thinking before. Well, obviously, regulation could get in the way of this plumber. If local plumbers, you know, make really high regulatory requirements and what this avatar has to be capable of, then they could they could prevent it. But it seems to me enough places might allow it to let it take off, and then other places would be shamed into copying or being less, much less productive. I don't, I mean, with a self-driving car, you can imagine, you know, basically the problem is it can help, but if you want to have the driver turn off their attention and not be paying attention to the driving, now this thing needs to meet really high standards 
but we don't have the person at home doing the plumbing and somebody looking over the shoulder, replacing it. We're, we're talking. And so the nice thing about the remote work thing is, is that it does help automation. That is, if you break any plumbing job into 30 different subtasks, you can automate each subtask one by one. You could figure out which subtax an automation could do. And then at that point, instead of swapping in a human to do that, you swap in the automation to do it. Uh, you know, because you've, you've broken it down into lots of little things. As opposed to, you know, a self-driving car, if it's going to be that, it has to do all the tasks, right? Not enough for it to do 80% or 95% of them. It has to be ready to do all the tasks it could meet. And that's the hard part of that, that problem. Right. That makes sense. Uh, the plumber is not at high risk of causing uh, a really bad outcome in the tail and um, killing someone just by repairing a pipe. Um, and so getting it to the stage of good enough to start rolling out and then learning from user feedback and more kind of uh, outside the the training world of, of creating the thing, um, you could see it take off capturing one local market at a time maybe, and then eventually barriers right. to adoption. Other places just kind of evaporate. Right. The, I mean, plumber is just a stand-in for lots of industries where we don't have much specialization because we need somebody pretty close to the final place where it's done. So if you just lots of services that happen in the city, they actually aren't very specialized. And we're, you know, you're imagining like factory level specialization from all these little local tasks. That's the sort of thing I see a huge payoff from. And automation can swap in there, but I don't see automation as the main part of it. It's just a nice add-on. Makes sense. This idea of robotic plumbers and robots doing various other tasks, uh, I feel like um, is a good segue into uh, your 2016 book, which uh, is it's unlike any other book that I've ever read. It's called Age of M. Um, and you give this incredibly rich and detailed prediction of what work, love, and life will be like when robots rule the earth. And um, we can get into the specific uh, kind of details of how that relates to uh, current things going on in AI, but First, what inspired you to write a book like that uh, so far out into the future, a uh, hundred years or more? And what are the main benefits of thinking through far off futures that in inevitably are going to differ from what we predict? The main goal of that book was to show people that it's possible to do much more detailed futurism than I'd seen done before. So a lot of people sort of say, you just can't do futurism, it's not possible. And so they say, you know, a science fiction story is kind of the best you can do. You might as well, like, be inspired and speculate on the basis of things like that. And I was trying to say, no, you, you can take a specific scenario and work out a lot of detail carefully uh, if you follow my method, which is a pretty standard, simple method, but it takes somebody knowing a lot to do. Uh, and if you believe this claim, then... It would be worth having hundreds of books like this, each taking a scenario that has maybe a one in a thousand chance of happening. And by having all the books, you'll cover now a lot of scenarios. So each book doesn't need to convince you of a high chance that its scenario will be true. A one in a thousand or 1% chance is plenty. Uh, because we can afford to have a thousand books. We've got lots more than a thousand books in the library. If you go look up, even about the future. And so the claim is we can actually study the future. It's quite possible to do so. 
And the key thing to do is you define a scenario, particular, say, technology that might appear with certain characteristics. And then you just turn the crank and figuring out how that plays out in, a, in, a, in the world. And so you assume the world's much like ours, except it has this new technology. And then you go through all the main fields that we understand, applying your standard results in those fields to how would the world change with this technology. So my example of that is brain emulation, i.e. a computer model of a particular brain that would substitute for that brain and have similar behavior. And I assume such a thing could exist and be cheap. And I assume a few things about its features, mainly that they're simple and are, you know, not very complicated and therefore forces me to have a relatively simple scenario describing them. That is, these emulations are black boxes and you can't don't know how to take them apart or mix them and match them with others. So all you can do is turn them on, turn them off, run them fast or slow, copy them, that's it. Uh, and then I say, okay, well, what will the world be like as a result of that change? And so if you apply economics, uh, you know, electrical engineering, structural engineering, urban economics, sociology, you just take every field you can think of and say, what is the basic 101 version of that field say about the scenario? And just pull those all together and make a consistent combination of them all. And ta-da, that's a description of what such a world might look like. And you might think, yeah, but you couldn't do that. And I'm going to say, ta-da, I did it. I'm trying to prove to you that this can be done. It was done. And I hope to inspire other people to do similar efforts. Yeah, I, I can definitely attest that you achieve at your at your aim of of constructing something that is very internally consistent, that puts together all of these pieces that we've learned over time and still makes sense, even though it's you know kind of projected onto um an you know, an imaginary or, or a simulated right. scenario. Um, I, I also feel like writing a book like this, apart from it being such low hanging fruit and like you have millions of books about history in the past and the, there's pretty severe diminishing returns to another book like that. There's very few books uh, that look at the future with a similar level of like, almost like a historian from the future were writing it. Um, but there's also, there's also some interesting kind of advantages to this kind of, this kind of style or art form that I, I was curious to ask you about. So it seems like, it seems like in a lot of situations, it's very difficult to get an audience for just understanding basic facts about how human life is right now. Um, right. if it's not new stuff, if it's not urgent or or like a, a brand new uh, breakthrough. It doesn't catch people's attention um, and in the way that kind of the gradual buildup of human knowledge across a lot of different fields does. And so framing it as I'm writing a book about the future, but then including all these like things that are in my mind, super relevant to the world that we already live in that I hadn't really thought of uh, before um, is it's kind of a cool way to, to market understanding that's that's already relevant now um and and uh kind of a corollary to that is that i think a lot of people are really they are too kind of enmeshed in the details of kind of their life and social life and things that they take for granted intuitively in interacting with other people that they're actually 
not very receptive to being told that they're a particular way, even, even if that could be very well supported. Like the, a lot of the theories that you have about how people behave make a lot of sense, but people don't like listening to them. Um, But then in this future scenario, like all of that resistance kind of evaporates because it's like, he's not really talking about me and saying that I'm like this, like I'm signaling or I'm status conscious or, or whatever. He's saying that these robots are like that. Um, did, did that figure into kind of your, uh, your thought while writing this at all is this is an opportunity to, to tell people to some extent how they already are. I mean, I didn't plan it. It didn't influence my plans, but I certainly noticed and other people noticed that this could be more of a tutorial about how the world works. I've certainly noticed that people are just too, too interested in changes relative to the constant. That is, a lot of people are eager to like look at news about trends and what thing might be, how things might be different a little bit in the future. And they're less interested to know that like, you don't understand the present. <laughs> you don't understand the basic world you're in now very well. Uh, why are you so interested in how, how it might change in five years? You should be more interested in just knowing about this thing you're in that you don't understand. Uh, so and I think people do tend to assume that because they can navigate the world effectively that they understand it. I mean, it's also a thing in history that is good history analyses will focus on theories about how things work that you might realize apply to you too. Uh, and you can learn f- about your world from history as well. Of course. Uh, if, if you had to put a number on this, what percentage of age of M would you say pretty much directly translates to social life today? I guess I'd have to go through and do a survey, but I would think <laughs> at least 30%, maybe 70, I guess that I'd have to look more carefully. Um, and there's certainly some things that are different. I mean, I tried to find the things where there were differences and trace those out, but even the differences highlight things about today by contrast. Of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so right in line with kind of what we were just talking about, um, the robots in Age of M retain some very human features. Um, they're based on high fidelity brain scans from actual humans. And so they still socialize and have desires for things we care about um, in terms of you know, romance, belonging, success, all of these things. Um it's very it's very familiar in that sense, um, but I'm wondering, kind of in general terms, what criteria you sort of looked for to determine whether human whether certain human features get kept versus others that get abandoned, and based on that framework, whether there are any major human features you see as more or less likely to change in a possible AGI future um, if that were to happen before or instead of uh, the M scenario that you speculate. So you're right that I need some sense of which features are how pliable or plastic in order to project the future. That is, some features are just so hard to change, I kind of assume they stay constant and maybe their expression or application changes. And then other features are more ready to change if if the world wants it. So part of that sort of looks for the history, right? Which are the features that have been most constant across our past? and which things have changed a lot across space and time. You know, whatever has changed a lot in the past is a candidate for something that could also change in the future. And then I'm also using sort of our theories about which things are deep and hard to change versus, you know, on the surface and ready to change. 
Um, you know, if we could pick concrete examples, I guess we could, we could go through those, but, you know, we could talk about, I don't know, work hours or something. I mean, clearly work hours have changed over history. So M's could work more than we do today because our ancestors worked more than we did, at least in certain time periods. But in pretty much all work in the past, people needed breaks. You know, breaks every few hours, breaks at lunch, breaks in the evening, breaks on the weekend. So that seems robust. So then I presume, okay, M's will need breaks. Uh, they may do different things with them, perhaps. But, um, you know, uh, one big clue is just what has been pretty consistent in the past. You say that M's will be good at vice givers uh, to give a concrete example of of a human I actually actually I'm not sure if that um would be considered a good human feature or not but I'm wondering if the M's are good advice givers uh will AI necessarily be a good advice giver and what are your thoughts on AI to human mentorship possibilities with even just in the immediate future with GPT-4 well the whole idea of M's is that they are really close to being humans so we know a lot about humans and that we can use all the things we know about humans to talk about M's. M's are only a modest modification of a human. AI is a name for a vast category of possible computing and machine systems. And you have to pause to realize just how vast is the space of possible systems. If you started out with a human and say, AI must be something like a human, but not that different, you'll just be really wrong. <laughs> the space of possible AIs is really, really large. And that's one of the things you have to learn to understand about AI is AI is just a name for this vast space of possibilities. So that's one of the biggest problems in reasoning about AI is to try to categorize it somehow, to make some shape of the space of possibilities, to draw some lines through it or planes through it so that you can distinguish, like, what are the main types of them? Uh, so that's why if you ask me, are AI good at advice? I go, uh, well... Some are and some aren't. Like, what assumptions are we making about the kind of AIs? So in that case, I might just look more to the human. Well, if we're talking about AIs advising humans, the constant there is the human. I might say, okay, when do humans want advice? When are humans willing to listen to advice? That would be the analysis base I could go on. And now we might say, when could AI fill the slot that a humans want for advice? So now if we look at humans who take advice, we see that often humans asking for advice or taking advice is just a way to suck up to people, basically. So like I'm, this anecdote from a book I once saw, you know, struck me, which was there's this manager, high level manager at some firm. And one of the things that happens to high level managers, people are constantly asking for meetings with them, come in and ask them for advice. That's just a thing high level managers do all the time, right? And so this person announced um, that uh, they were retiring in six months. And immediately, nobody wanted their advice anymore. <laughs> they were the same person knowing the same things, but uh, they didn't, nobody wanted advice because, in fact, asking for advice is really kind of a way to ask for support, social support. They wanted his alliance. They wanted him to support them, you see. And all of a sudden, he was no longer a valuable supporter because he was going to retire, and therefore they didn't want his advice. So that theory of advice says that AIs aren't going to be very useful as advice givers until they have power so that you can pretend to solicit their support by asking for their advice. Because it's not really about the advice. 
Uh, and then we also notice with humans, humans often try to give advice as a way to exercise dominance, which is often a reason why people resist advice. People are like usually pushing advice on other people who don't want it. That's just a pr- really common thing in our private interactions, right? And so it's not about me begging you to give you a you to give me advice and you like reluctantly turning your head to me and maybe helping me. It's about people constantly pushing advice on each other and people trying to be polite about it, trying to pretend they're listening, and then also trying to show their independence and that they aren't taking the advice from everybody who pushes it on them, right? So that scenario of advice says that, uh, well, you know, AIs will have to have some social power in order to push their advice. And then maybe they could push people to take it because of the same reason humans take other people's advice. But it's not about actually wanting the information. It's more about a social dominance display of, you know, people are dominant if they can get other people to take their advice. So, for example, managers and politicians often resist taking advice in public, even if they take it in private. That is, they'll often want advisors to advise them in private. But if somebody gives public advice, they go out of their way to not do that thing because that would make them look submissive to this other person who gave the advice. So now if you see, put all this in the AI, we say, you know, AI doesn't count for advice until it has some social power. And otherwise, people aren't going to want it. Yeah. And so, and so really, it seems like, I guess maybe the question is, are are M's good advice givers or are they just better advice receivers? Because uh, in, in the situation that you, that you describe in the book, like a lot of what's going on is people are receiving, I mean, M's are receiving advice from other copies of themselves that have different life experiences, but are fundamentally, um, you know, linked uh, in right. that way. And so they have a lot to gain from asking for advice because it's uh, very applicable to their specific idiosyncrasies, and similarly, um, and you know, they're not competing really... and and having dominance yeah. contest with other copies of themselves. That's more the presumption here. So they're already if you, had, an if you had a twin brother, you see, say you had a say you were a dentist and your twin brother is a dentist, and you live in different counties, right? Now you might be willing to call up your twin brother and get his private advice about being a dentist, especially if his practice is a lot like yours. If you saw him as your ally and, you know, one person in the world you most loved and was closest to, then you could be asking him for advice and he could be giving you advice if his world is actually a lot like yours and he's actually a lot like you. That's the situation of the M's is that they're giving advice in to very closely similar people in very closely similar circumstances. And they're giving it privately and they're not in a dominance competition with each other. And it's also much easier just at an informational level to interpret a request for advice. Because I feel like if I sincerely really, really do want advice and I want to apply it in order to improve, um, you know, I know that, but the person I'm asking for advice is thinking, are they like, are they trying to ingratiate themselves with me? Are they trying to, you know, uh, present themselves in a particular way? Are they like, what's kind of the ulterior motive? Whereas um, it's much easier to to interpret and understand so, the intention. So actually, of, what yeah. I say in the book is that people will look at the experiences of people close to them, which is a little different than asking for advice. So like, imagine you have a marriage. They just observe spouse, without right? having to talk. You have a marriage with your spouse and 
there's a copy of you who is married to another copy of your spouse. Now, if they did something that got them in trouble with their spouse, that's information to you about what might get you in trouble with your spouse. They don't need to actually give you advice, you see, but the point is that they're in just a very similar situation. So you, you'll just be very interested in what happens when they do things, because that'll be informative of what happens when you do things. Yeah, that that seems related to um, the paper you wrote with, with Tyler Cowen about, um, I remember one of the points in this article about why people disagree. And it basically, one thing that stuck with me from that is that if you if you know that someone else has the same, you know, priors as you and, and, uh, that they also hold a particular belief, like you should update to believe something similar to what they believe, even in the absence of any sort of explanation or seeing like sure evidence. At least uh, on average, you should move to their position sometimes a little less, sometimes far, but on average, you should be moving to where they are. And, and it seems like, I mean, among among a tribe of M's that are all copies of of each other right. with different experiences, it's very easy to, without having to ask explicitly, you just see what they're doing and um, learning a lot of things about what they right. believe based on their context, and you can update very quickly. So humans today have many kinds of social groups they're part of, and then this cop set of all the copies of the same original, which I call a clan, is a new social unit in the M world. And so we're somewhat speculating about this new unit. So the clan itself will try to make this unit bond as closely as would you sort of you with yourself at different times or you with your twin brother or something. The question is how well they'll succeed at that. And, you know, the more that you will compete with other people in your clan, the more that you'll start to see them as rivals and maybe distrust them and maybe not be entirely honest with them. And, you know, if there's clan leadership positions, maybe that's unavoidable, there'd be some conflict, but I think the clan would go a long way to try to suppress that. So far, for example, as you hear your clan members in your head as a voice, but you don't like see them as a body in front of you, because we often like trust ourselves as a voice in our own head and a body in front of us, we might more see as a rival. Uh, and they would try to avoid being in situations where they compete with each other for the same roles. And that would make them feel more like they were just part of the same person, basically. But it's open question how far they'll succeed. I mean, that's something we don't know because we haven't actually seen that. But th- there's a sense in which clans have just a lot more ability to be close than most of our other units because they are actually very similar to each other and they do actually share a lot of interests. And so it can be structured that their interests are really quite well aligned, but is that good enough? I don't know. When when I discussed um, kind of the the notion of M copies with with a friend, something that came to his mind is how in science fiction movies, sometimes you have plot lines where like a group of clones kills another group of clones. Like they're the same genetic uh, material. Uh, they you would think that they should be grouping together as a clan, um, as you talk about, but actually they um, they they turn very violent. Um, and I I wonder I wonder why it is you you don't put more weight on on that possibility in in the book. So it seems like, for example, like um, like why should there be any 
like M vacations or M leisure in equilibrium because the the person who has the same capabilities that is a copy of you could, I mean, couldn't they exploit um, your leisure time? Like any leisure time that you have, they have an incentive to exploit and kind of cut you out in some way or or what am I missing there? Well, fiction is always going to be highlighting conflict in the most dramatic forms. So that's just a generic formula for science fiction. Uh, like, I mean, even if you say, look at the Black Mirror TV series that explores various future technologies, it's pretty much always trying to find the worst possible scenario with the worst possible conflict for, for any tech, right? It's not a very good guide to whether such text would actually be good or not, because it's basically always trying to find the worst case. Um, so, I mean, ask yourself how much conflict you have internally to yourself across time. I mean, so we do have some conflicts, right? You might, you know, rather say, spend money now and leave it to your future per- per self to make up the difference. Or, you know, uh, take advantage of some fun now that you could have that your future self will suffer from. And we mostly limit that sort of interpersonal conflict by a sort of a shared sense of identity. You see that future person as you, and you see that if you hurt that future person, you're hurting yourself, and that doesn't seem so fun. And so that shows there this possibility of producing more coordination and cooperation if you see these other M's as yourself. And so we can predict that they will try to do that. And the question is just how far can they go? Obviously, they won't always succeed, but it seems clear that if they can succeed, then the ones that succeed will win. You know, the, the clones that are killing each other and exploiting each other all the time, well, you know, that's just not a very winning formula for being a successful plan. Uh, they will die out. And so basically, the M world does select for personalities that get along with themselves. There are, there are some kinds of drama people who there, there can only be one drama person in the room, right? You, you know these people. <laughs> They're the drama person and the drama always has to be out them and their story has to be the center of attention. Those people don't get along well with themselves. Two of them in the room and now they're fighting over who's the center of attention in the room, right? That doesn't work so well in the M world because the M world needs a lot of coordination with people like yourself. Uh, So it's more rewarding people who get along with themselves, people who can cooperate with themselves. But just like Our world doesn't really that much reward people who can't save for the future, who can't delay gratification. The people who exploit their future self by taking all the advantage right now and spending every penny in their bank account, they don't survive in our world very well. You could could just ask, why why does anybody ever work? Because they could like have fun now and let their future self work. Yeah, so it definitely seems like the M world is selecting much more strongly on being able to delay gratification, uh, patience, and doing what makes sense in the long-term versus the immediate short-term benefit. Because this is part of a, a broader argument in your book is, is that you say that, um, you know, we've been living in sort of a dreamlike state where there actually hasn't been very much uh, selection pressure uh, among among humans for the last several centuries at least, Um, at at least in kind of recent time, it seems to me like part of the reason for that is that, you know, as liberal societies develop and as richer societies um, emerge, there 
there seems to be concern about, you know, making sure that people don't get selected out, uh, making sure that welfare is is provided to to people who maybe are not very productive or are clearly um, causing causing problems, uh, negative externalities. Um, but we still feel kind of like it's a basic sort of human right to ensure some some level of of preservation, regardless of people's choices, except in some rare exceptions. Um, what makes you think that uh, that M's won't feel kind of that sort of that sort of impulse, or um, is it is it just a function of the M's um, being paid at at basically subsistence levels in in your scenario, or what is the the main kind of reason why selection pressure will return with a force? So in our world today, we still have pretty strong selection pressure on businesses. Businesses you can create pretty quickly, they can grow quickly, they can die quickly. And we don't actually like prevent them from dying by saying, oh, we're so sorry for you, we'll subsidize you in order to prevent you from dying. So there are big parts of our world where we allow fierce and severe competition. I mean, it's also true in, say, democratic elections. (laughs) We allow candidates to be voted out of office and to stay out of office. And we don't feel very sorry for them and make sure they get an office to stay in uh, indefinitely. We, we allow severe competition among candidates for office. And similarly in music, say, or movies or whatever, we just allow pretty severe competition for artists or music. Like we don't feel sorry for musicians and make sure they all have enough people hearing them in order to be respected as a musician. If people don't like your music, we are allowed to have nobody listen to your music and even make fun of you. I mean, that's part of what we allow. So it's only a limited range of things that we, where we don't allow as much competition on. And, and the story the, in the M world is there's just naturally more competition for population because they can just make population much easier. Like, and they can also make population go away, which it's just mechanically much easier to make M's and mechanically much easier to end them at least, or put them in a retirement stage. So, so for example, you might f- feel sorry for M's that, that they don't die, but if you can just make them retire at a really slow speed, they're not dying. And so now maybe you don't feel so sorry about them retiring, right? So I can imagine people say, let's make sure nobody ever has to die. Let's they make sure the worst that ever happened to anybody is they retired to say one in a thousand human speed, one thousandth of a human speed life. But that's really cheap. And so now, okay, fine. That's the worst it can get. But like, we still allow enormous competition for who gets to run faster. And then it's all about how fast you live. And then we'd allow that, right? If you had a sympathy, no, everybody needs to run fat the same speed. We don't like people running at different speeds. Now you're just going to have a lot more regulation in society. And so a fundamental dynamic now and then is really just how many elements of society are we going to allow competition on and how much are we going to like prevent competition? And that's in part sort of how much we are embedded in a larger competition. So up until recently, the world was embedded in competition between nations and societies. And so if one nation was very kind to its members in a way that was not very productive, it would lose out over time to the other nations. And that was a discipline that limited how bad things could get in various dimensions. Today, we have more of an integrated world where 
And in fact, we don't have so much competition between nations and we more have a, you know, unified world community that if it creates a rule that is adopted everywhere in the world, then it could overturn competition. And we have done that way for some forms of regulation. But, you know, I'm, I'm basically assuming in this analysis that doesn't happen in the M world. That is, there's substantial competition is allowed and it has these effects. Now, partly that's because of that's a method of analysis. That is, the re- one of the main reasons I'm able to say so much about the world of the age of M is that I assume it's competitive. And competitive worlds just tell you what happens. In a non-competitive world, a world of rich people who are full of leisure and can do whatever they want, it's not enough to just know how rich they are, what technologies they are, to know what happens. You have to know what they want. But in a competitive world, you don't actually have to know what people want to know what they do because they do what they have to do to win the competition. So if you thought like, what kind of movies would Hollywood make? If you have a world where like Hollywood is a government monopoly and they are, you know, have the only ones allowed to make movies and they can make whatever movies they want, well, the movies that Hollywood makes is whatever the executives want them to make, right? In a world where the public decides which movies get sold and if you don't make, if you move, you keep making movies that don't sell, you go out of business, then we can predict the movies that are made or the movies that the public wants and we don't really need to know what the executives want. They're Preferences are not very relevant. It's what does the public want that decides what movies get made? And that I'm using that method of analysis in the world of M's. I'm saying this is a competitive world and therefore I can figure out what they do and I don't need to know what they want. Yeah, that makes sense. And and even, even in our world today, which is much less competitive in comparison to the age of M, it's still, as you point out in the in the book, there's a relatively small number of dimensions where uh, people are actually really concerned about uh, alleviating inequality. So, so a lot of focus is is put on income inequality, but there's lots of inequalities that are arguably even larger that are pretty much never talked about. So, even income inequality, we don't do that much about. Right. Uh, so, so to mix things up a little bit, uh, let's try playing a game I call "How to Change My Mind." Okay. I'll throw out, I'll throw out something relating to views that you've espoused and you can tell me the conditions that would make you open to reconsidering your position. Okay. How does that sound? I, I may have to pause. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no rush. Um, so the first one, you plan to have your brain frozen after you die so that it can be emulated into a future version of you. Right. Um, this would be once the M's arrive, presumably. What if anything would convince you to change that plan? Well, so it's based on a cost-benefit trade-off. Certainly, if the price of freezing myself went way up, that might tip me over, or the benefit went way down. So the two main risks are that, you know, the kind of information that's preserved in a current freezing of a brain is just not sufficient. If you could show me that, contrary to my current impressions, the actual information is coded on a very fine spatial scale with very fragile structures that are quickly destroyed, in a freezing process, then I'd say, I guess it doesn't work. The structure is not there. And the other risk is just the organizations won't survive. So if you could convince me that like they're going to face some hostile opposition that's just going to try to destroy them, probably will. And I go, okay, I guess the organization can't last. So then I wouldn't last. Gotcha. People often use the phrase, the future is female, but age of M actually implies that the future is largely male. What is Does this? It? I'm not I sure think it does. so. 
uh, in your section on um, on business, I think um, you talk about people whose qualities tend to be most competitive today and people who tend to be um, the most productive and work the most hours. And uh, on the kind of right tail of the distribution, a lot of those people are are male. Um, and so, so, we- so I, I described two contrary factors and I'm not sure which one dominates. So one factor is certainly that men tend to have higher variance in productivity. So the most productive people in each area tend to be men. Um, that's one factor. But the other factor is, as I say in the book, that women tend to do better on raw sort of grit and determination and persistence uh, in difficult situations uh, where men will often lie down and die or quit or just be lazy and and slovenly and um, unmotivated. Women will just keep plowing through. And the question is how much that matters. Um, so, I mean, we, we do, we will select the most highest performance, but you see men often have this highest performance because they get a lot of social benefits and celebration from it, right? Men often, you know, get more girlfriends and wives and, and praise for being the best, but the M world will select the best and then they'll be ordinary in that world. So can they be motivated to be the best when they aren't distinguished and they aren't celebrated? They are just existing because they're the best, but that's it. That's all they get, just existence. If men are demotivated then, if they say, oh, what's the point of working so hard to be the best if I'm just average? Then, and women are more willing to just keep working hard even if they're not celebrated, then maybe women would have an edge there. That's the question. What do you think the ideal gender mix is of an M clan? Uh, if if you had to guess in that case, because um, I'm wondering whether whether all women might uh, band together better in some ways uh, because of well, the um, idea of a clan is all copies of the same original person. So right. they would all be one gender unless they do some sort of gender transformation within the clan. So I guess do you think do you think male clones will will get along better or worse than than female clones, or do you think it's or will there be any mixing at all? Will there be plans? I, I would think that clones? the more similar our clan members to each other, the better they get along. Because we're gonna what we're gonna try to do is make them feel like they're just each other in their head. It's like I'm just hearing myself talking to myself, basically. If if that's the the, the image we're going for, then just they should be as similar in as many ways as possible. Um, so you know, if you had yourself talking to your head, except it's the other gender. <laughs> That might be a little disorienting, sort of break the illusion that it's you talking to yourself. Um, but I, I do think probably most people want to do a male-female pair bond. That's just a pretty common human preference. So that would be my assumption is most people, just for deep human emotional reasons, want to be part of a male-female pair bond. And so they will do what it takes to make that happen. We'll pay substantial costs in order to make that happen. And so that's probably how it happens. So I try to discuss how you can have that be true, even with an unequal demand for male and female labor, by basically having different numbers of copies of each side of the relation or different speeds, uh, so that they can have the same sort of 
equal relationship with each other, even if they have an unequal relationship with the labor market. But, you know, obviously the simplest way is just a nearly equal dem labor demand. But I think you can accommodate maybe a factor of two or four in the ratio difference through some other means. Gotcha. I'm actually not sure what your views on on this particular thing is, uh, but what, what do you think are the odds that we look back on Blake Lemoine, uh and in some way kind of see him as being one of the first people who really, really understood something about AI and uh, AI Sorry, being- Sorry, Blake who? Uh, he was the Google, Blake Lemoine was a, a Google developer who, um, you know, basically- Told was telling everyone that uh, that AI was was sentient. And oh. He got fired. Um, you know, I think about a year or so ago, like before that stuff made it out into OpenAI and and the excitement that we're seeing about AI today. I think there's any um, chance that uh, people look more favorably on him in the past rather than just as a crazy person, which so, is what he looks so like. So far, time. people have just made the sharp distinction between humans and machines and animals. And when they make that sharp distinction, they're willing to just be much more harsh in their treatment of non-humans than humans, right? And say, say we focus on animals, right? The more you start to see animals as continuous with humans, say chimpanzees, then the less willing you are to tolerate harsh treatment of chimpanzees and the more that you're going to insist that people be kind in various ways to the chimpanzees. Um, Presumably, we're eventually going to do that for machines, too. And so the question is, how will we draw the lines? That is, will we just have some graded treatment where you can slowly treat them more harshly as they get different from humans? Or will we draw some sharp lines and say, past this line, you can ignore it because that's nothing. And that's just going to be hard, especially with AI, because, again, there's this much larger space of possible AI than there is for animals even, right? The space of animals compared to humans is relatively limited compared to the space of possible AI. So the nature of morality is, and the sacred is such that you tend to want to have relatively simple, clean rules that everybody can observe and enforce. And the question is, well, um, what can those be? <laughs> um, so there's two kinds of set of rules. One set of rules is how not to be mean and cruel. And maybe another set of rules is how much to support and help. Right. So even in the past, if you don't have any sort of welfare or obligation to save somebody else who's like, you know, dying in the desert or something, you can still have norms about not mistreating them that you come across them. Right. So it'll be easier to just set up norms of, avoiding mistreatment than it will be to norms of help. So a basic problem with M's and AIs is just so easy to create them that if you have an obligation to help them, once they're created, this is just unsupportable. It's just, it's just too big a demand. It's just easy to create things that if there was an obligation to help them, then you, they would just quickly suck, suck up all available resources to help them because they're so easy to create. So either you prevent their creation or you don't have such a strong obligation to help. But that could still be, you could still enforce a mistreatment rule. It's like if you create it, you don't do the following things. That's more feasible as a set of rules in a world where they're easy to create. And now the question is, what counts as mistreatment? Um, 
And you know, one standard we have is some sort of voluntary standard. Like if they object, then you're mistreating them. But if they say it's okay, maybe you're not, depending on what the rest of us think. And um, you know, you could certainly imagine, like in the age of M, I say one simple rule you could imagine that applies to a very wide set of cases is just a right to suicide. You say, look. Pretty much any M and maybe any AI should just be given the right to suicide. That is, if you understand the concepts of suicide and you decide that's what you want right now, okay, it's yours. Um, and that can be a way to like define torture, right? What's torture? Well, if they'd rather commit suicide than continue existing, you must be mistreat, you must be treating them pretty bad. Um, that's at least we're searching for like simple rules that we can all agree on to apply in this really vast space of possible creatures. That's the hard problem here. And we haven't really explored that space very much. We don't have much of a sense of how big it is and what all the creatures in it are and what they could be like. I mean, obviously some of them could like torture. Some of them could enjoy suicide. I mean, you know, how do you apply rules to them? For a very long time in Western societies, um, the Bible has been a really foundational, like the foundational book, I would say. Um, and that affects uh, so much of, of how people think about things in ways both conscious and, and unconscious. Uh, will the M's uh, still have any connection to the Bible or will they uh, perhaps develop an alternative Bible of some sort? Will there be, you know, kind of in line with what you're saying here, will there be like right. a good Samaritan story, except the the good guy in that story is the one who walks by the, the M on the road to Jericho without mistreating them? Uh, what what do you think that looks like? So the, the two big facts to notice, or maybe three, like one, clearly religion was very functional in the farming era. I mean, it, the modern religion showed up halfway through the farming era. And before that, they had some pretty different religions. But, you know, for the last few thousand years, we've had the modern religions and they have been pretty functional, right? And the Industrial Revolution happened and they survived it all. The, the major religions are still the major religions in the world, even after this enormous transformation in the Industrial Revolution. So if the M Revolution isn't any bigger of a transformation than the Industrial Revolution, you got to predict that well, they can survive that too. Now, what we have seen is a great decline in the interest of religion in general over the last few centuries, but we still have the same religions being the major religions. I mean, if you're going to do religion, you're going to do it the old way in our world. And so I would predict that if the M's want to do religion, they'll do it the same old religions. And those religions have already shown the great ability to adapt to changing circumstances because that's what they've done in the last few hundred years. So they'll probably be fine at adapting to these new changes. Uh, then the question is really just how much demand for religion would M's have? And for that, you need to try to understand, well, why have we had a declining interest in religion in the last few centuries? Because we had pretty strong interest before. And for that, I have this sort of forager to farmer to forager story as my explanation of the trends in the last few centuries. And that theory predicts that we would want to return to religion with them because they would be much poorer and need a lot more self-control and dealing with hard circumstances. And religion would be there for them for that. And so my prediction is, okay, they, they go back to emphasizing religion more and they use the traditional existing religions because those seem pretty robust. And that's the simple prediction. 
Now, you could already predict, like, you'll need a, f- a few modifications to, you know, traditional religious dogma in order to accommodate the M's, but they're pretty obvious and easy. So, of course, yeah, they just switch. You know, M's are, they say, you know, M's are children of God. M's have souls. M's can go to heaven. You know, now the question is, like, if you make a five-minute copy of an M, does it go to heaven? Right. Those will like, be the theological debates in the age of M. Or, or if you make a copy and it sins, is that a, your sin or is that the copy sin? Right. You'll have to because the law will actually have to make a decision there that if you make a short-term copy and it sin, it makes it breaks the law. Then that's your fault. That is, you will be held responsible for the legal violations of short-term copies. And I think if the law does that, the religion will probably go along and call that a sin too. So if you make a copy that commits a sin, that's your sin. But that would that's my guess because it fits with the law. But, you know, those are the questions they'll have to answer in order to adapt religion to it. But again, religion has adapted so well to the modern world. You know, it's really pretty flexible. So I, I expect it will continue to be flexible. You know, logical consisting had never been the main reason people got into religion anyway in the first place. And theologians have long been able to like tell twisted stories to try to make things that appear inconsistent be consistent. So there's going to be plenty more of them. So they'll just do that. The thing I was hung, hung up on there for a second is um, without physical bodies, in principle, M's could go on indefinitely. And so I, if M's well, are already immortal, does does religion like, is that really such an easy hole to plug or? Or how, well, how do so you? That's a framing question, right? Like, um, so you can imagine that every five minutes, a copy of you goes off to a heaven, <laughs> even if you continue, or you can imagine only some endpoint of you that never continues would go to heaven. Those are two different religious choices that theology can have, right? Or something in between. That's a key question. So um, I don't know. I, I guess the, the conservative thing is to say, only a sort of branch that ends goes to heaven. But maybe does a five-minute branch that ends go to heaven? Does it go to a slow heaven? You go to the fast heaven if you live longer? You know, those are the tough choices there, right? You you could imagine roping in uh, maybe a theology of suicide, since suicide is not frowned upon in the same way in M society. Maybe, maybe M's commit suicide occasionally on on faith that they will be transcended into something you know beyond into into a heaven right but if they commit suicide with one copy that was branched off and then the main line goes on like does that count as suicide yeah. that that debate of course yeah still <laughs> remains as well um hmm. but you know yeah I, yeah I, maybe you're not showing enough faith if you if it's only a copy <laughs> maybe maybe short term maybe copy, the entire right, yeah. branch yeah so maybe you need to have like sacrificed and suffered for a long enough time to qualify for um, heaven or hell or whatever. I don't know. But the point is, religion will just search in the space of possible answers and they will compete with each other and some will win the competition because they more motivate people and bond people together. And we can understand the, the under, underlying function of religion you see staying constant while the details vary. Fascinating. Um, so uh, I guess I'd like to close with um, just a, a couple of miscellaneous questions, I guess. So, okay. so my first question 
uh, is just how do you use GPT? Like, what have you found to be the most valuable applications of it for for what you do? Um, and what insights would you have to share with with others? So at the higher meta level, my attitude is that we've seen rapid improvement in abilities over the last few years, and that there's plausibly going to hit a, a, a knee of the curve in the near future where they won't improve as fast. They'll run out of data, they'll run out of hardware. And so we're seeing rapid improvements, but they'll reach some plateau sometime soon, and then they'll be stuck near that plateau for a while. If that's true, then the time to really pay close attention to their abilities is when they hit that knee and go into the plateau. If they're rapidly changing in abilities and looking at the limitations of any current version isn't very informative about the future because they're going to change. You could look at what they can do, but looking at what they can't do won't tell you that much. So then the thing today is what can they do, right, in a robust way. So, I mean, what I did is like did some tests of seeing like what kinds of reasoning can they do or not in closer to my area or what kind of like exam questions they could answer if I, for my students, because like maybe my students would try to use it to answer my exams. And, you know, I saw that, you know, there were, it was impressive in terms of what it can do compared to previous systems, but it's just not good enough to do a lot of the ordinary tasks I gave it. And I can see how to sort of assign my exam questions so as to avoid its abilities so that I'm safe from people play, you know, using it to take exams. What I've, you know, and that's basically, I can't see that many other ways I could personally use it, but maybe in the future it'll be better. But the point is to get a rough guess now and wait and do the extra effort when it reaches the plateau. But the other thing I should be doing is just listening and saying, what do I hear about who can use it to do what? And the main thing I hear is that programmers use Copilot to program. And I know some experienced programmers who are saying they're getting like 20% boosts in productivity from using Copilot. And I go, okay, I believe them. That And that's plausibly the biggest valuable application for it. I mean, it just by reason about, if I try to think about what applications it could work for, and that, that just makes sense as an application that would be high value. So at the moment, that's my best guess. That's going to be the highest value application. And 20%, you know, maybe it'll go up to 40%, probably won't get that much higher. That's roughly the boost that you're going to see out of it. That's the main group of users and how they'll use it. And that's my tentative conclusion. But again, I'm going to wait till I hit, see them hit the knee of the curve. And I'll try all my suite of questions again. I'll say, okay, have you figured out how to do the following questions? And, you know, what can you do? And maybe it'll be better enough then that I'll think more about what more can do. But at the moment, it's just not good enough to do the range of things I tried to have it do. And, uh, but it, apparently it's good enough for doing code. So great for the coders. I'm not a coder. Gotcha. Yeah, I've, I've definitely been dabbling with, with Copilot, I think. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't do Stata, which is the main thing that that I do. Uh, but I'm maybe, sure it will not at yet, some point. But maybe in yeah, a few we'll months, soon. maybe they will, right? And uh, and I think it'll make it a lot easier for me to use uh, my knowledge of Python, even though it's not my strongest language, because I know enough to take advice from AI. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, uh, last question uh, is. 
I mentioned at the beginning of the, the interview that you recently moved um, overcoming bias to Substack. Um, yeah. What what all went into that decision, and, and what do you what to you makes Substack such a uh, such a superior option over but blogging as it existed before? I think the main thing that happens when people move support systems or computing environments is just that support declines for an old thing and rises for a new thing. There's just a lot of value in using a supported system, a system that other people are using where there's people there who are building and fixing things and et cetera, right? Adding new features. Right, or just fixing the old ones when they break. Uh, The more that you're stuck with old computing systems, the more you know, your hardware options are limited and your feature options are limited. And then when things break, it's hard to fix. And that's just the nature of using old things. So there's a sense in which for many kinds of computing applications, many people would just be better off if they just kept the old systems and didn't keep switching to new systems because there's all these people who just have to keep switching every time old systems go away and new things come. And they're not actually getting better service from the new systems. They're just getting the basics of having a system that's supported and works, right? So, I mean, that's the main thing I'm getting from using switching the Substack is like the thing I've been doing before hasn't been so supported because it was old and lots of people are using Substacks. So if I use the same thing lots of other people are using, I'll get support, right? I mean, I can talk to other people about what they're doing and they can give me recommendations and somebody's fixing the bugs and, right, upgrading the hardware. I mean, that's just the sort of thing you get with a supported system, right? I know see... many people like like who have very happily used old systems and then they grudgingly have to switch, not because the new system has any better features or so things, it's just because it's hard to keep using old unsupported systems. Brian Kaplan has uh, has pretty much been evangelizing Substack since he um, moved from his his old setup to there, um, and he just says that so many more people are are reading. Uh, his posts on a regular basis than than before. Right. And that's um, part of the infrastructure, right? They have an infrastructure to help people find it and, you know, read things in the same environment. And that's, of course, what they're designing. But that's part of being in a supported system is, is people find you more easily there because people go to supported systems to look for things. If you had to predict uh, a year from now, um, how, what multiplier would you would you expect to see in your existing readership uh, based? Yes, readership. That's part of the losing support is I lost my stats on how many readers I had, right? That's part of the features I was no longer getting. The old system was even knowing how many readers. So at least now I'll know how many readers I have. Cool. Well, I'm sure it will be a huge success and uh, look forward to continuing to uh, read your posts. Thank you so much for sharing some of your insights today and uh, encourage everybody to to check out uh, Age of M. Uh, well, thank you, Robert. Thanks for discussing it. So I'll just, last thing I said, I, I just went to University of Chicago where I gave, I did three events. One was a night owls thing where I was interviewed on the topic of the sacred that had like 175 people there. Then I did a discussion uh, talk and discussion of Age of M with about 25 people. And then I did another one about eight, 
I'm sorry, about elephant in the brain with 25 people. Then I had one on Age of M with about five people. <laughs> so, you know, not so many people were drawn to the topic of Age of M there compared to the other topics. But because I gave that talk two weeks ago, I had reviewed Age of M. And so I was all prepared to talk to you about it because I had gone through it in my head. So thank you for revising a topic here that uh, not so many people wanted to come to a talk on. Well, I think it's definitely underrated in that case. That's, I think I've only uh, scratched the surface of, of fully internalizing some of the some of the things in that book, and um, I suspect it'll continue to be very relevant. Uh, both. Right. I, th- I think. I mean, one thing you could say is that it gives you a more validated met- mark of how weird the future might possibly be. That is. You know, usually the world doesn't seem so strange as we get used to it, but science fiction tries to make these really strange futures in order to make it dramatic. And you might think, yeah, but how strange would the future be, really? And so this is a certain degree of strangeness, you have to admit, right? And it's plausibly about roughly how strange you should expect the future to be, even if my scenario doesn't apply. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of insights into things that are going on all around us uh, right now as well. I think I think the present is maybe more strange than people realize. And and maybe yes. uh, when they imagine futures, it's not grounded enough in the things that are likely to persist. Um, and they don't know all the things we don't know about our world today. Absolutely. All right. Well, nice talking. Likewise. Thank you for your time.